Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. It's my great pleasure to be here to talk to Richard Holloway, who is someone I've met on many a broadcasting occasion. Uh, and this is the occasion of this book, On Forgiveness. Richard has written 40 or so books. Not quite as bad as that. Well, many of them very challenging indeed, uh, challenging to his role as, as a bishop. Now, let's get this clear, Richard. You are, I said to somebody you were an ex-bishop, and yeah. they said, you mean he's been defrocked. And I think that's not the case. They haven't got round to it yet. But um, <laughs> No, I'm, I, I, I resigned um, on Halloween, the year 2000. Uh, but you remain a bishop because you must have been anointed. Yeah, sort of, yes. Right. So you have, you have a blessing yeah, they upon They say once a bishop, always a bishop. Well, once a bishop, always a bishop. Right. Now, I just ought to say, to people who think a book about forgiveness is an easy ride, and it's about uh, milk and water, kindness to each other, it's about patting children on the head and saying, there, there, I know you didn't mean it, I forgive you, uh, you're in for a shock because this is a really heavy book. This is a hard, hard argument. It's about what it takes to mend the world's troubles, really. And it's both internal, what it requires of each of us inside, and social, what it requires of our societies. So it's not just forgiveness of minor errors and misdemeanors. It asks, can we forgive criminals, Villains, murderers, can we forgive Mara Hindley? Can we forgive the Taliban? Can we forgive what's going on in Israel Palestine or in South Africa under apartheid? Can we forgive profoundly? And the remark that you choose as the subtext for the book how can we forgive? the unforgivable. And of course you say, well that's a contradiction in terms, it's impossible. And the argument of this book, which is very clearly carried through, is that it has to become possible. So let me ask you, why forgiveness? Why do we need forgiveness? Why not follow a sense of natural justice that something wrong requires uh, a revenge of some kind? Um, I think precisely because there's something about our humanity that inflates and distorts and expands. So um, justice, which I think forgiveness is the antithesis um, to justice or vengeance. I think that each is natural, each is probably uh, essential to any kind of healthy response to events. But there is something in us that um, gets locked into the vengeance cycle and, 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 and unless there's some way of stopping the effect of the act, it takes our future away from us. And I think that, that the way forgiveness works is that it encircles the act and keeps it in the past and gives you back the future. You, you know the effect that a terrible act of abuse can have on a person. It, 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 they're abused as a child and their whole life um, is taken away from them. Uh, their life simply becomes the remembering, the reenacting 
of that act of abuse. Um, and it, it can be some great historic evil. Um, and so the, the event becomes sovereign. Uh, forgiveness, if or when it happens, contains the act in the past and closes it off and gives you back the future. And unless you can somehow do that, it means that every one of our acts um, is endless in its ramifications and we become imprisoned by history. We probably all know that. I mean, we know ourselves, don't we, in our personal lives. Things that have made us, um, have hurt us, a betrayal, um, a disappointment, an insult, an outrage, a, a mugging, a cruelty. It's pro probably part of the lives of most people here. It's very easy to say, well, I'd just like the villain to be caught and to be punished. I mean, is that unreasonable? Nope. Um, it's, it's not unreasonable and it's probably ethically necessary, um, although I don't like the word punish. I think that um, I, I prefer the word justice. I think uh, the act has in some sense to be acknowledged as being contrary to good um, human relations. Um, but I think that the simple punishing of the act um, can simply uh, maintain the act and, and allow it to reverberate. I think what you need is some kind of acknowledgement that that should not have been done, um, but... By the, by the villain, by, by the culprit. By, by the villain, and there are two kinds of forgiveness. I mean, th there's the conditional forgiveness. I, I do a wrong thing. Um, you are outraged. Something in you uh, is, is outraged by that injustice. It, it consumes you, but my apology switches off the anger in, in most cases because, because at least it, 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 you, you have a sense in which, yes, I was right to be grossly offended by this, uh, and, and, and it, takes, it, it takes it away. And I think that that's something that we negotiate in our human relation. I bump into you in the street. Um, you are instantly offended. It's been a complete accident, a clumsy act on my part. But if I immediately say, I'm terribly sorry, I'm an absolute fool, your anger goes away. Um, if that act of, of apology or confession or contrition isn't there, then it, it, it sort of acts as a kind of acid inside you. Uh, and we've known people whose lives have been dominated by a single offence, um, a single act of infidelity. Uh, uh, and it, the, the, the tragic thing about it is, and Hannah Arendt has, has, has a wonderful uh, quote in one of her books when she says that we don't know what we're doing when we're acting, but our actions are irreversible and they can, in fact, uh, destroy the future for us entirely unless we somehow find a way of, of switching off the power that leeches into the future. And I think that's what forgiveness is. I, have, I know a particular example of this, of, of something that you're speaking of, because I did a programme uh, on television called Can We... Is it Time to Forgive Myra Hindley? And in the course of making that, I went to see one of the parents of the children that she'd killed. And this mother was, and it was 20 years later... Uh, what did we expect to find when we went to this woman's home? We found a shrine to the child who died, but we found a woman whose entire life had stopped mm. at the time of, the, of this murder, and all she did was grieve for the daughter. It had destroyed her life, and she hadn't, as the phrase is used, moved forward from mm. there. On the other hand, how could we expect anything else? How could we expect her to say, well, um, it's all right? It isn't all right, is it? 
No, uh, and you can't expect it, you can't prescribe these things. Uh, but her tragedy is that she doesn't have a life. That's true. That, that she's That's true. locked into that gross event, and her whole life has become a mourning, an angry mourning, um, because of that, if, if she'd been assisted or had had the strength or maybe the counselling um, to, to, to put an end to that, she could have had the rest of her life. She would still have been in pain. Um, and forgiving is not forgetting. It's not excusing. It's moving on. Uh, and the, the tragedy of the things that we do to one another is that we can, in fact, rob each other of the future. But you can understand why, if we had said to her, here's some counselling you ought to forget. She would have been outraged mm. because mm. it would insult the memory of her child, mm. it yep. would demean the yep. offence, mm. and she didn't want it to be forgotten. It must be true of the butcher parents. Mm. I mean, mm. they don't want to see this event move into the past and be forgiving. So how and why could we expect them to do that? I don't think that you have the right, certainly if you haven't been through one of those horrible events, uh, to require it. Um, the, point, the only point I'm making is that there are some people who have a kind of grace and strength in them, wherever it comes from, uh, that enables them to stop uh, this steening of the future. Um, uh, the horrible thing is, has happened. Um, they never forget it, um, but they get the future back. Uh, I instance in the book the story of the woman uh, in Texas whose daughter had been killed, um, murdered, and she wanted to see the man executed, and she got permission to visit him, and she found herself actually forgiving him. She hadn't gone intending to forgive him. She found herself forgiving him, and her act of forgiveness a few weeks later released in him um, the ability to confess what he'd done. So in a weird kind of a way, forgiveness often um, generates confession in um, the offender. She now campaigns against capital punishment. He, of course, is dead. This was Texas, after all, where they, they kind of kill them on an assembly line system almost every weekend. But she, it, it gave her a future um, in which she saw that he was almost as much a victim, and he was. I mean, a, a lot of the people who get into these terrible predicaments, um, l l like, like the kids that killed the, the Bulger children. Um, and if, if we can somehow um, get into a frame of mind when we have a kind of compassion for the horrible things that we do for each other, we might then develop an economy of sympathy that enables victims and offenders somehow to discover their humanity and will all move on into the future. If all you have is, is tit-for-tat revenge, um, a terrorist attack, a counter-terrorist I mean, God, look what we're doing in the world at the moment. I mean, we're we'll in this spiral. The, we'll come to the okay. world in a moment, actually. Right. We're I want to stay with inside here. Right. Because I want to say, I mean, there is a certain relish in bearing, I'm not <coughs> talking about murder now, but a grudge, you know? Someone offends you and you always remember it. And there's a certain frisson of malicious, you know, revenge, isn't there? Tell me, there is that little feeling that you can... Yes, well, I just got that little thing about you. I'm mm. not going to forget it or forgive it. Mm -hmm. There is a certain mm -hmm. spirit about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we having to give that up? I, I, no, you, you don't have to do anything. Um, uh, the thing is that if you choose... I'm trying to be a good woman. Yeah, Richard. you are a good woman, um, clearly. Uh, and we celebrate that. Um, but 
and, and, and what you don't want to give up isn't, isn't all that important. Uh, but it's a question of choices. I mean, if you want to choose to live that way, to have those particular satisfactions, you, you are, you're closing off other ways in which you might also be. Um, you stunt, I think, certain possibilities. But no one's ordering you to do any of these things. It just is that humanity is capable of extraordinary magnanimity uh, and extraordinary variety. I think a lot of it's a kind of strength. Uh, Nietzsche said, um, uh, one of my patron saints at the moment, he said, the strong person is good at forgetting. Um, even at self-forgetting, because the energy of life enables the strong person to live life to the full and into the future, whereas the weak person is constantly blown off, is constantly irritated, constantly insulted, taking the huff, um, never moving on, and that's just a sad kind of a way to be. But there's no great voice, I think, in heaven saying, you must forgive, or you must be great, or you must be strong. Some people just seem to be strong. Right, well now let's come to the world, because let's just leave aside the personal hurt and indeed the, the personal outrage, because within your book there is this exposition of how we came to have a conscience and to create law and to move on from it. Can you just take us, I mean I think you speak of the era about 800 BC, I think it is, when you say that the human race some, somehow acquired a conscience. Where mm. did that come from? And how is it moved? Um, I, I mean, you'd have to race through a, a, a lot of history. But, but, I mean, if you buy the kind of Darwinian um, picture of, of, of what happened, which I do, um, uh, you know, that, that's our current scripture in many ways, um, it, it, it tells a story that's unbelievably long, um, and the gradual emergence of conscience in this apparently unconscious universe in us. Uh, and before us, presumably, um, uh, most stuff happened with a certain kind of automaticity. Um, uh, it, it's a feeding chain. Uh, one animal preys upon another. Um, uh, they, they, they prey upon another um, enough to live off them. In us, consciousness brings awareness and knowledge and a kind of um, intentionality to all of that. Uh, and I think that with that also came the sense in which unmitigated power creates victims, and in time the victims resile against that. No one likes being a victim. And so the emergence of conscience seems to me to have been some, uh, you can almost explain it mystically, there's that something in us says it's just not good enough for the powerful and the strong to have it all their own way and to flatten the rest of us. And we internalize that, even the strong. Uh, and I'm a kind of strong, powerful man. I, I, I've been conscious of, in subtle ways, exerting my power over people. It's deeply seductive, especially as a bishop. The big pointed hat, the big stick, um, <laughs> literal and metaphorical. Um, all of that, uh, and, and so, so, so I think what conscience did was to make you aware of all the ways in which that can go badly and abusively wrong. Uh, and so you then start putting in systems to check and to balance the ways you, you, the ways you, you abuse one another. And I think the history of our humanity is the history of the flattening of that power pyramid. Um, now, well then you, you go on to explain how Moses' injunction an eye for an eye mm -hmm. 
was a good development because it it isn't a reve it revenge. It's a proportionate oh, absolutely. response. Yes. So it's good news yeah, when yeah, when yeah, this yeah. law arrives yeah. in human history. This is a, a real step forward. Yeah. It, it it was. It was the birth of proportionality and punishment because uh, the thing about the revenge instinct is that it becomes um, addictive and it can become indiscriminate. Um, if my second cousin offends um, uh, someone in the McGregor clan and so the McGregor clan takes out a fatwa against the McDonald's, it means that all McDonald's um, are at risk from this McGregor fatwa. Uh, that was the system that prevailed before. And along come Moses and says, no, it will be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Um, if, if you pluck out one eye, then you can pluck out an eye in, in the offender. And it balances, it calibrates it. Uh, and of course, you then get the extraordinary development and other moral thinkers when you begin to think the unimaginable possibility of maybe even learning to love your enemy. Uh, and there was a guy called Jesus who came along and landed that in the world. And that was the big rock that fell into the pool. Uh, but it, it seems that the history of conscience is this attempt in us to try and widen the scope of the neighbor. Uh, it's easy to be neighborly to, to, to those you love and live with, but uh, what, what the great moral geniuses in humanity are wanting us to do is somehow to universalize that. Do you think people, some people are born without a conscience? Yeah, I think probably. I think that, that I don't know whether they're born or whether they're made, mm -hmm. but there is a, a kind of psychopathy. I mean, you, uh, if you're fascinated by serial killers as I am, they, they seem to be incapable of affect. Mm -hmm. Of, of feeling the effect of what they do. And I think it may be that certain kinds of conduct can coarsen and dampen all of that, yeah. But I think it's quite rare. I think, I think most of us um, have a built-in sense um, of the, the need and sympathy, you know, a, a kind of sympathy for the other. I think it's one of the reasons why ethics is actually natural to us. It doesn't have to come from God, this stuff. It makes good natural sense if you don't want to be murdered, uh, not to create a culture in which people regularly get murdered. And I think that that's why altruism is as natural to us as, the, as its opposite. Well, Moses laid out the law that limited revenge. Mm -hmm. Jesus in the New Testament really blows a hole in the system by saying, turn the other cheek, love your... This is, I mean, this could be perceived by the enemies of Christianity as a weak doctrine, i.e. concede to your enemies, oh, well, that's, quite, that's a doctrine to make other people feel, well, hey, we can, you sure. know, we can abuse be. this. Yeah. We can abuse yeah, this yeah. generosity. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. how do you then defend your values if you're prepared to, as it were, concede to your enemy? Well, Christians never actually tried to practice it anyway. I mean, they've just been as, as uh, they've just been as bloodthirsty as, as any other group. Um, so it, it's not as though it actually got taken up um, very easily. But it is actually worth thinking about because what what these people seem to be saying to us, unless you can somehow universalize brotherhood and sisterhood, then you are. Um, uh, sentencing yourself to a life of endless warfare. Uh, unless you can somehow 
uh, make the enemy the friend, and that's in all the great kind of religious traditions. Um, uh, it's impossible. I mean, Derrida calls it a madness of the impossible. Uh, and it is. It's crazy. Uh, people don't try to live this way except for extraordinary towering characters. And when they appear, they change history. Now, this book, and I'm going to name one of them, this book is dedicated to Desmond Tutu, who, of course, chaired the uh, Peace and Reconciliation mm. Commission in <coughs> South Africa, South Africa yeah. which was based on forgiving mm -hmm. all those terrible sins. Have they pulled it off? Um, not entirely, but my goodness me, it was extraordinary um, to see a political process trying to apply. It was conditional forgiveness. Uh, it was a kind of amnesty. Uh, if you came and took part in the process, um, it, it was tantamount to kind of forget, you know, uh, confession and absolution. Yeah. Uh, but to see it applied anywhere was extraordinary. My God, if we could get it applied to Northern Ireland and, and Israel-Palestine, uh, what peace it might bring. And it was because there were two gigantic men produced by South Africa and our era, Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela, uh, both capable of extraordinary forgiveness. When you consider the passion of their people, I stood outside Nelson Mandela's cell where he lay on a thin uh, mat for 18 years. It gave him arthritis in Robben Island. And for that man to come out of there with that kind of towering magnanimity is extraordinary. Now, you can't, you can't organize that. It just somehow happens by a kind of historic grace. But when you see it, it can change history. Well, you use a phrase like historic grace. But so what you're saying is th these acts of huge magnanimity, which, of course, was em were embraced by the entire politic of South Africa, it takes leadership mm -hmm. in of yep. a supreme yep. where, are the, where are our leaders? Where yep. is the leadership? Yep. Yep. Where, yep. where do you look for that leadership? Yep. Yep. Well, uh, it, they appear, and we seem to have a famine at the moment. Um, uh, wh wh whoever it is that generates these towering figures has left us barren, um, because we, we seem to have a lack of magnanimity in international politics at the moment. We have this petty kind of tit-for-tat kind of stuff. Uh, there is no figure. What, what seems to happen sometimes in history is that you get a towering wounded figure who has been wounded by a particular kind of strife, and rather than simply becoming a terrorist, um, a bomber, a person who is partisan, somehow transcends it and is able in his or her person to unite the sides because he, he rises above it. Um, it's very, very rare in history, but when you do see it, um, it can, as I've been saying several times, it can actually turn history right round. I end the book with that extraordinary example of, of Winston Churchill. Um, Winston Churchill, in, um, on November the 11th, 1918, uh, went, it took his wife and they went to, uh, to Downing Street uh, to congratulate Lloyd George on, on, on the armistice. And just as he was leaving, he heard that the Germans were starving. In his romantic way, the fallen foe were starving. And he rushed into Downing Street and he said, let us, let us get two large ships and cram them full of provisions and send them to Hamburg to feed the fallen foe. And they laughed at him. Uh, and in William Manchester's great unfinished biography um, of Churchill, he says, at that very time, a blinded Pomeranian non-commissioned officer was lying in hospital, hearing of the plight of his people, 
and he resolved to go into politics, and of course his name was Adolf Hitler. And the point being that Churchill's magnanimity might have changed the face of the 20th century had it been listened to. So magnanimity in politics is the application of forgiveness, and we don't seem to have any great magnanimous people at the moment. Do you think the fact that we have this famine is associated anyway with the decline of formal religion? My God, I mean, just think of the religiosity of the White House of 10 Downing Street. The, I, mean, I mean, you know. No, no. When religion goes bad, there's no more toxic poison on earth. And I think that bet, better no religion than bad religion. There's just, there's, I think there's too much religion. Um, and the, the trouble with bad religion is that you end up thinking you've actually got God on your side. I, I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's a kind of grace, maybe. Some people just have scale. Uh, but who are the big politicians in Britain at the moment? I mean, who are the people, in a sense, that transcend um, all the little petty squabbles? We don't have them, do we? I'm, I can't think of any. No, no, no. I mean, they're all tiny kind of... But do uh, you recognise them? Yes, I suppose you do. Nelson Mandela was an outstanding figure even when he went to jail, wasn't yeah, he? He was yeah, already yeah. outstanding. Yes, that's true. But, but <laughs> he could easily have, have, have simply become another politician. Uh, now, I think there probably was, it may be a, 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 a gift of birth almost, I mean, a, an original endowment of the self. There does seem to be people who have an extraordinary mercy and generosity, which is consistent with toughness. I mean, Desmond Tutu is a tough man. I mean, he never ever let um, the African, you know, the apartheid people off the hook. Uh, he, he fought right to the end, but with that humorous forgiving zest, that was implacable against injustice, but saw the moment that allowed um, a, a kind of forgiveness into the situation that can change the course of events. Uh, it, it, uh, there isn't a big figure in, there are some novelists in Israel-Palestine that do that. It may be that artists can change the world. We've given up on the politicians. It may be that places like the Hay and Y book festival uh, <laughs> might, might, might start a kind of uh, a moral transformation of the community. It certainly doesn't seem to happen among politicians because they get corrupted Ah, but Auden said poetry changes nothing. Poetry changes nothing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, we like it. In, in, we enjoy yeah, it. I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I, I know Auden said it, and I've often quoted that I love it. And I think he was meaning that it was a good in itself. So it, it, it doesn't have to be an instrument that changes anything. Um, if, if you had met more of these intrinsic goods that were simply good in themselves, they change people. They transform people because they make them realize uh, that, that life is, is too big and important and filled with beauty and sorrow to be petty about. Let's talk about the really big forgivenesses that are, must happen. The Twin Towers. I mean, it was unavoidable, and you say this in your book, it was unavoidable that George Bush should respond to the Twin Towers event because, just because it's within human nature that mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. one crime mm -hmm. called forth a response. Yeah. How can you inter interfere with that, what appears to be some sort of equilibrium mm -hmm. of the crime mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the vengeance or the retribution? Mm -hmm. How can you interfere? I, I don't think you can. I, th I think that uh, you, you must be careful the kind of discourse you use. In none of this can you actually say you must forgive. 
Uh, it doesn't work that way. Um, but what you can recognize is where there is no forgiveness, there is never any peace. Um, there is an endless escalation. You get this constant descant of violence upon violence. And what happens after 9-11? Um, Afghanistan uh, and, and Iraq. And, and you know, wh where's it next? And, and, and you know, we, we, we could very well end up actually destroying the planet. Because the thing about us is, we're, we're, as well as being semi-demonic and semi-angelic, we're also, we're also very clever. And we've actually created weapons enough to blow the bloody planet sky high. Um, and uh, th that seems to me to be the kind of uh, um, crazy turmoil we're in at the moment. And there aren't any of these big transcendent figures that somehow are able to calm us. I mean, George Bush, a big transcendent figure? The most poignant equation of this uh, offence and retribution, which you hear expressed, and indeed in, on the BBC or anybody's news programme, is when it is in Israel, when yeah. one spokesman will say, well, we'll stop when they stop. I'm not naming the spokesman. They, one side says, we'll stop if they stop. And then the BBC rushes around and asks, and they say, well, we'll stop if they'll stop. Mm. And mm. it's almost as though... How can you crack that? I yeah, mean, it yeah, just needs yeah, a, yeah. a genius yeah. or an act of grace of some mm, kind, isn't I know. it? I know. That's why Amos Oz calls the leadership of Israel, Palestine, Sharafat. <laughs> yes, Sharafat. Mm. I think you should join in now. Can yeah. we have the lights up? Because I know people uh, would like to perhaps join the debate. It's quite tricky for me to see here. See Can we have, a, yes, a little more. We've got, um, we've got a microphone. You'll have to wave your hand at me for me to see. Yes, there's somebody there, halfway down. If I could just take it back to the personal aspect for a moment. I have a problem with my parents and my sister. I'm stuck. I need to forgive them but there is no act of contrition. And in fact, if I were to go to them and say, I forgive you for what you have done, they'd actually be insulted. Because as far as they're concerned, there is absolutely nothing wrong on their side of the equation. But for me to move on, to, get, to lock it in the past and get my future, somehow I need to forgive them. Can you give me any pointers as to how I can actually go about that without the act of contrition from them, and not necessarily saying it to them, but just knowing it myself. Yes, it, t it takes both sides, doesn't it, in some way, or one mm. has a sense that it does. I, I don't honestly think there is a trick, um, but sometimes there seems to, you seem to get visited by a kind of, um, a kind of peaceful resolution where, where you realize this may not get reconciled on their side, but it's time for me to move away and to move on. Um, I don't think there's a formula that will do it. Um, I suspect from the way you're talking, you've half done it. Um, I think the secret partly is not to feel guilty that you can't do it, because that only amplifies and adds to the thing, um, but simply to know that you need your future and that you are somehow gonna have to put all this in some kind of perspective uh, and you may, in fact, find yourself gradually doing that, and that the thing uh, may, in that kind of painful way, get resolved. But there isn't a formula. But I suspect that the fact that you've spoken about it the way you have 
suggests that it's happening already. Um, I can't, that's right, take these lights down. There's somebody here? On the individual level, uh, we know of individuals who find forgiveness very difficult, mm. and that's why we put the criminal justice system on the level of society or the community. Mm. But on international level, uh, we've always striven to have a system like the United Nations, and that's what makes it so difficult with the Iraq situation that Britain and America have decided to take action independently of the United Nations. What can we do? to within the world to re-establish the role of the United Nations and to make forgiveness uh, more easy for the nation state? Gosh, I mean, I just wish I knew. Um, I've, I find myself absolutely astonished. I mean, I've suffered two massive levels of disillusion in my life, one with Christianity and the other with the Labour Party. I thought the Labour Party at least would kind of um, hang on in there for a, 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 a bit longer. I think that, that it may be that we simply have to um, affirm those politicians that are still standing up for some version, however meager and frail it may be, of institutional international law. Uh, it, it's, it's frail, but it's the only thing we've got. Um, there is a sense, I suppose, in which the Prime Minister also recognises that, although he's certainly put a large hole in its side with, 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 the, with the Iraqi war. Um, I think we live in a very, very precarious state, and, and, and the, the new doctrine of, of, of uh, getting your retaliation in first, of, of kind of preemptive regime change, is a very perilous one. Um, and uh, I think we're all quite, it's quite appropriate to be rather scared by the way things are going. Um, but I think there are always people that do speak to the times, philosophers do increasingly, novelists do, and I think that we simply keep our voices up and don't take fright and just go home and cultivate our gardens. That's always the danger in periods like this. Yes, there's someone here. I wonder if I could ask you to comment on um, forgiveness and dying. When I was a little boy, I remember that my dad used to speak with great derision about deathbed repentances. Mm. But now that I work as a volunteer in a hospice, I've seen the gift that dying people can give to their loved ones mm. by giving forgiveness, which is something that we're denied if we die suddenly. And I've even come to think that a slow death, therefore, is an opportunity for much greater gift than a sudden death. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, all that lovely um, stuff that you find in most of the religious traditions, and it's there in the Christian tradition, you know, um, uh, look thy last in all things lovely every day, um, uh, memento mori, be, 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 remember that you could walk in front of that bus tomorrow. So have your affairs, as it were, tied up, as well as having a will written so that you don't embarrass your heirs. Um, have a kind of, um, uh, a, have your relationships ordered in the same way. Um, Jesus said, let not the sun go down in your wrath. There's, there's something incurably tragic about someone dying um, and therefore the possibility of reconciliation being at an absolute end, which is why a lot of um, deaths result in guilt among the survivors, and you will have seen that yourself. Uh, and almost anything is worth um, avoiding that. Uh, and I think that death is, is therefore the great 
thing that can act as a sort of discipline in achieving this kind of harmony in, in, in relationships. It, it's, the, it's also the good bit that's left in the old end of the world stuff that you get in Christianity, the apocalyptic thing. If you, if you translate that into a passion for making this world new, then you, you don't allow any of that stuff to go bad and to go rancid. You act as quickly as you can. Um, and deathbed repentances of the classic sort, of course, were um, uh, a way of postponing uh, the disciplines in this life, but just getting in, as it were, uh, in time to get the good things in the life to come. Um, and I think while I understand the psychology of that, I don't approve of it. I think if you've lived a defiantly sinful life, you should die a defiantly sinful death. <laughs> I have to confess that uh, as a rather rebellious teenager, whether I was at odds with most of the world, I always remember when teenagers do think, you, you'll be sorry, you'll be sorry. And I did have a fantasy of being hit by a car and lying in bed, dying and saying, I forgive you all. Yes, <laughs> that, that, yes, 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 yes. But presume, can I just ask, I mean, it, it, it is leaving it late, although it's a wonderful reconciliation at the end. It, it is leaving it very late, isn't it, and leaving a lot of pain untended. Do you find that from your experience? I read an interesting article by um, Dame Cecily Saunders, the founder of the hospice movement, now in her 90s, I think, who said that she hopes that when her time comes, she will die of cancer or in a way that will give her time mm. to say the things that need to be said and to put everything to rights before she goes. Whereas most people in pub conversation would say, you know, well, when my time comes, I hope I just go to sleep and don't wake up. Mm. Um, but if there are matters to be forgiven, when you know that you've got a little time to do it, it can sometimes, it's intensely moving to see the gift of forgiveness given in that way. And um, I was so interested that Richard Holloway spoke about giving people back their future because we see that happening quite a lot of the time. That's very moving. Um, other questions? I can't see it, I, I, I'll come to you in a moment because, but I, there's somebody at the back, I, it's quite hard to see. And then I'll come to you. I wanted to ask you, uh, you seem to have suggested that forgiveness is a grace. But I wonder, are there ways of learning how to do it? Um, and are there ways in which we can teach our children how to forgive? Mm. The difficulty with, uh, with that, one reason I'm being kind of tentative here, the difficulty with that is that I've seen um, so many people stunted by guilt because they weren't able to forgive. Um, I've, uh, I've met women who've been grossly abused by their husbands and the anger that they felt was a necessary therapeutic prelude to their own healing. And it was important for them not to forgive in those circumstances, because forgiveness is what they had weakly always done. They'd colluded, they'd, they'd gone along, and it was an energizing anger um, uh, out of a kind of sense of the need to revenge themselves that actually gave them back their humanity. And if you intrude too quickly, ah, dear, but you must forgive him, you know, he's one of God's children, um, you can, in fact, 
stop something fundamental and therapeutic happening. So, and there's been a lot of that in Christianity, uh, what Bonhoeffer called kind of cheap forgiveness. Forgiveness is actually very, very muscular and tough. Um, I think that maybe one of the ways that we could help prepare people to be forgivers is by bringing it into our discourse, actually talking about the possibilities that there might in fact be better ways of responding to offenses. Um, if, if a woman does kill her children, for instance, there's nothing more tragic than that. But do we actually help the tragedy at all by locking them away, by, by, by continuing the punishment? Is there not some other way in which we might understand our weaknesses, our common weaknesses, and develop different kinds of cultures. Goethe said, beware of all those in whom the urge to punish is strong, uh, because it's usually about something inside, our, inside ourselves. And really strong, magnanimous people are rarely punishers. So if we could somehow get that out in public discourse, um, instead of the kind of... Um, think, of think of the culture uh, propagated by the tabloids whenever there is a, a, a child murder. Um, uh, the, you know, the kind of hate, the kind of lynch mob mentality around, the hounding of paedophiles in that um, housing estate we've had it in Scotland, that whole kind of thing fomented by the tabloids and under based on an understandable revulsion in us, uh, but, it, but it, it only amplifies the pain that we all feel. And if we could maybe develop more slowly another discourse of mutual understanding and mutual forgiveness, we might create saner, less offending societies. Um, so I think that would be the way that I would do it. I would be very careful not to try and land extra burdens on people. I've known people who've desperately wanted to forgive but couldn't. And it would have been very easy to tip them into really pathological guilt by saying, and you call yourself a Christian? Um, so but how I, I, do you unlock that? Is it a meditative mm. moment in which you move from being wounded, revengeful, to suddenly saying, I'll give that up and let yeah. it go? I mean, yeah. is it arrived at in a meditative state? I mean, is that, should there be something of that nature mm. going on? Uh, it's a mystery, really. It, and and it, has, it seems to have something to do, as I've already said, with the original constitution of the self. Some people are actually quite good at it. Uh, they don't take offense easily. Um, other people bristle very light. I, I, it, so it's maybe something you get from your parents or your DNA. Um, but I do think that even things that are original endowments can be practiced and we can acquire habits that we may not naturally have. Now, but you see, the question was, how can we teach our children? And mm. everyone knows that small children are absolutely brilliant at saying, but it's not fair. Yeah. They yeah. have... They know, don't they? Mm -hmm. They absolutely yep. know. Mm -hmm. And they want the, f the unfairness righted. Yeah. Now, yeah. you know, it's a cliche. We all say to our children when they say that, life's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they don't want to hear that. Uh, what they want is for the world to be fair. Yeah. And they have to learn to negotiate in a world that is not fair. So this is a real crisis in child rearing. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that E.M. Foster helped me here. Uh, Howard's End, the epigraph, only connect. I think that the way you get off the kind of um, uh, it's not fair thing is to acknowledge that you yourself have been um, 
uh, someone who's probably committed injustice, um, and that if the truth were known, as Shakespeare said, who would escape whipping? Uh, and if you can somehow balance the fact that you got away with it most of the time, so what's the point getting all steamed up because someone's done you in once? Um, if, if you achieve a kind of humorous, imaginative breadth of sympathy, um, uh, you, you then get better at shrugging it off. Uh, and now, it, they're difficult lessons to teach the very young, um, but, but they also have an innate sense of fairness as well. Uh, and they also know, that, they're, you know that, that, that William can pull Elizabeth Bott's pigtails behind the old barn, um, and one boy can bully his brother. We're all doing it. None of us is innocent in this world. So if we all admitted the mutuality of guilt um, and that somehow it all gets evened out anyway, we would stop this passion for punishing each other, I think. Some of us are more villainous than others, aren't we? I don't like to feel I'm, you know, equal, uh, deserve whipping perhaps as some people. I mean, I, there are law-abiding citizens and there are law-breaking yeah, citizens. Yeah, there are real monsters, but I think they're actually, um, on the whole, fairly rare. Most people don't murder and rape and pillage and steal. Uh, and the ones that do usually have a kind of history that conditions it. I mean, the, the connection between youth criminality and poverty is absolutely crystal clear. Uh, one of the tragic things about our country at the moment is we release billions of pounds to punish young offenders and release very little money uh, to create and, and enable institutions that work with preventing offence happening to do it. Uh, we, we, we don't, it just doesn't happen. And we've got a Home Secretary who's, who's tough on all that stuff now. Um, and most of the social, I, I, I shared a conference with that astonishing woman, uh, Camilla Batanjali, is that how you pronounce mm -hmm. the name, who runs Kids Company in mm -hmm. Southwark. Um, the, these feral children who've never been socialized or loved, who are absolute little monsters, and she sympathizes them back into humanity. They're gonna close her thing down because the neighbors don't like the fact that she's got this stuff going in these archways in London. And it's the kind of NIMBY thing. Uh, and she's constantly having to stop. The government approves of what she's doing, but they can't find a funding stream to support her because the managerial paralysis in the country um, says that management is the absolute good, rather than saying it doesn't matter where the hell the money's come, we're gonna support you because you're changing children's lives. Uh, so there's a crazy kind of emotional, emotional famine in the country at the moment. We just need people, I think, to get positively angry about well, it. Well, you see, you've already enumerated the, the blocks in the road, haven't you? Mm -hmm. That The point that you make about government and funding, you, uh, you made the point um, about other resistances to forgiving, the tabloid, the capacity of the tabloids to gear up hatred. Mm. Um, I mean, these are hugely powerful forces. We do need, in a sense, the sort of redemption that you once had, but you can't have now, in a sort of religious revival, a sort of Wesleyan movement in which people rise up together to assert different values, and but, that's very hard now. But, but why, why can't we... Uh, the values are still there. Uh, they're still, uh, I think, universally applicable. Why did, why did they have to have uh, the religious wrapping? It was what was inside the package that counted, not the package. The package has fallen away. Why, why can't we just release the virtues as were naked and at last come of age and on their own? Because there's no focal point. I mean, the church... Um, was a focal point with its rituals, whether, whether you approve yeah. them or not. It was a focal point. We don't have a focal point. Well, we better find others. I mean, what, what, 
can't we just do it as part of our human need and, and you know, our human possibility? Uh, that, that way of doing it's over, uh, but it's not over, mm. the importance of it. So, so we need to find new modalities. Mm. More questions? I need the lights up. Yes, there's a questioner here. Am I missing people at the back? Yes, there are two people. You come next, the two at the back, but you, your turn now. I want to just ask you a little bit more about this connection between anger and forgiveness. Uh, thinking of social and political change and the way in which many things are done which are essentially oppressive and which those who are oppressed in some way need to change. I think these feelings range from maybe the way that the war in Iraq was waged against the will of a lot of people. How do we forgive that? Can we forgive it and still maintain the anger which is in a way necessary in order for change to happen. We talked, uh, you talked about Mandela before and of course he, now he can forgive. But during the struggle, mm -hmm. the critical thing is how to maintain maybe that ability to forgive so that you're free yourself and yet remain with the anger which is part of the spur for change. Um, I lived for some time under Mobutu in the mm. Congo. Mm. So much was done there. It was certainly not right to talk with people there about forgiving. Mm. And so I'd love your thoughts on, on how you blend these two together. Is it possible to forgive the act, forgive the person, and, can, and somehow maintain your anger about the act? We don't all want to lie down underneath what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thank you for that. That's fascinating. And I, 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 that's one reason why I keep saying that there's n nothing mandatory about this. It's all about our healthy humanity, uh, and there is an appropriate time for anger and justice. Um, it's, it's a question of recognizing when the moment um, to put an end to that phase has come so that you can do it, so that you're not forever pathologically locked into the appropriate anger, which then becomes inappropriate because it doesn't know when to end. Um, uh, Hannah Arendt is, is, is fascinating on this. She says, you never forgive the act, only the actor. Uh, you can never forgive the offense. The thing that was done was, was terrible. But you might just learn to understand and to forgive the poor, pathetic soul who did it. Um, and it's very important in terms of moral outrage to say things, certain things just are wrong and they remain wrong, even though you forgive the person who's done them. So it's, it's, it's again, it's like, like, the, like any kind of life, it requires artistry. Uh, and I think it gets, we get it wrong if we have it too tightly packaged. And sometimes religions package it too tightly. I think uh, the art of skillful living is a kind of balancing, you know, uh, between righteous anger and when anger is appropriate and maybe even violence. But when its day is over and, and uh, the, the abuse has been ended or has been punished and it now comes the time to put the arm around the person so that we can all move on, so that the person doesn't remain forever in the state of being punished because as we know what happens, I mean, is, is Mubarak said that um, uh, the war in Iraq will have created a hundred bin Ladens. Uh, you never actually ultimately resolve anything by any of that. You sometimes have to um, resort to some of that stuff but it's the tuning, the fine tuning. And it's and not an exact science. Yes, over there. Um, 
I'm a mother of um, three children who are aged 27, 24, and 19. And um, they ha had an aunt who went missing in 1973, my sister, Lucy Partington. And mm. Mm. Um, we shared a, a program on, called Forgive and Forget um, a, a year ago and when I spoke. But I just wanted to share a bit of that because the questions all seem to there's a lot i could say and mm. I, it's difficult to limit it but um i have actually worked since 1994 until now which is nine years really asking this question is it possible to find inner peace without denying the reality of human atrocity mm. And um, my sister Lucy Partington became known in the media as a West victim. Mm. And, um, and I sort of wrote a piece that took me quite a long time. For me, it was helpful to find, I had to find words and I had to get them out there as an antidote to all the sort of pollution of the tabloid representation of the case. Mm. And um, I did publish a piece in The Guardian that had a big response. And from that point, um, and I, it, from the very moment that we found out what had happened to Lucy, I made this very deep commitment that I wanted to try and bring something positive out of this experience. And mostly because it's, it is part of our family history. And I have children, and I, want to t I wanted to find a way of of transforming this experience and and um, in fact I have been very blessed to find moments of through really sitting with my own pain that's the way I've found by going on silent Buddhist retreats for seven days just being with myself and recognizing experiencing that I do have murderous rage and I do have a capacity to um, be a perpetrator in much more, you know, I have mm. spent mm. some of my life in ways that have felt, have caused other people pain. I mean, we've all done that. And it's been a very important part of my process to see that within myself and realize that you can't really experience compassion unless you know your own capacity for perpetrating evil. And um, what else can, can I, I ask you that? That's yes. very moving oh, to thank hear you so that. Much yeah. for that. That's, can I? Can I just yeah. press you a little further? What was your the main obstacle that you? I mean, this is an amazing achievement on your part, but nonetheless, mm. it, it obviously didn't come easy. What was the main problem? Um, what was the breakthrough that you had to make? What, what, what was the standing in the way? Um, well, it's just a long, the thing that, the, for me, the process of forgiving, I don't say that I have forgiven the Wests. I just say that I've had glimpses of knowing a common humanity and a sense of, just knowing that um, to go on experiencing the kind of thing that you witness when you, you met the woman whose daughter was murdered by Myra Hindley, that kind of terrible stuck place mm -hmm. is um, 
to me, when people say to me, well, don't you think you're letting Lucy down by wanting to forgive the West? Well, I say no, it's the absolute the opposite because I actually have experienced the sacredness of my own life. And having had that experience, why would I wish anything less than that on anyone else? That's, that's the way it's happened. But um, so I suppose being in the way is a sense that um, wanting the past to be different and having to actually accept that it never can yeah. be. And I think I met a woman who was at an international conference on forgiveness that I went to whose daughter was murdered in America. And she gave me this sticker which I stuck on the back of my hut where I meditate and write. <laughs> And um, it said, forgiveness means giving up all hope of a better past. Mm. And mm. gradually, I've really found that helpful <clears throat> because it actually does mean that you have to accept that things can never be the same yeah. and no human justice can make any difference to what happened to Lucy. But there is hope that I can live my life in a way that helps change the society I live in. Thank you. Uh, we've run out of time, and anyway, I just feel that after that testimony, mm. really, we are, we are left understanding something. Mm. Thank you very much for that. Richard Holloway, thank you. Thank you.